Hello and welcome to the Stocks and Savings Podcast. As always, you're joined by Andrea and Jamie, the two millennial investors behind the Instagram blog at Stocks and Savings. The aim of this podcast is to give you the tools you need in order to feel more confident about finance and investing so that you can build wealth while enjoying life. Before we get into the episode, we want to give a disclaimer that while we are both chartered accountants, we are not financial advisors. Nothing in this podcast should be treated as financial advice. This is for educational purposes only. When investing, your capital is at risk and the value of your investments may rise and fall. Always do your own research and apply your own judgment when making a financial decision or contact a financial advisor. You know, I always want to ask you, Jamie, how you are because I feel like that's what people do on podcasts, but obviously we're a couple and we work from home together. So it's like, I know exactly what you're doing every minute of the day, which is great. Do you? Do you really? Well, well, I like to think so. So it's always like, I I don't know what to say (laughs) in this section. Well, you could still ask me how I'm doing. I might surprise you. Okay. How are you doing? How's your week been? Yeah, my week's been good. Week's been good. Anything interesting happened to you? No. You? No. (laughs) This is great. (laughs) Come here for the investing education, but stay for the entertainment. Although there is one thing, and actually need to say this on the podcast too, and that is that there will not be an episode next week because we're actually going away for a few days, which would be quite nice. Going to the Cotswolds for a little bit just to get away and, and take advantage. It's kind of like a working holiday just from a different, nicer location. Which, to be fair, any holiday is like that for us now that we're social media content creators. Yeah, exactly. Like we're, we're planning to go abroad in May and we're still going to be posting every day. So, Yeah, but you know, it is our passion as well. So it doesn't feel exactly like working. But I'm very excited about going to the Cotswolds. It's going to be my first time and I've heard really good things and I've seen really nice pictures. So that's going to be good. But do you know what else is our passion? Stock market indices. Smooth. Okay, so let's get into this week's episode. The idea of this episode came from the fact that as finance and investing has become a bit more mainstream in the last years, we started seeing a lot of advice aimed at beginner investors that went along the lines of You don't need to know anything about investing, just put your money in an S&P 500 index fund and let it sit there for decades. A lot of this kind of advice comes from American finance gurus, which is why they usually say S&P 500. And while you certainly don't need to be a finance expert to start investing, I do think that it's not as easy as, you know, put your money in the S&P 500 without even knowing what it is or what the stock market does or what you need to do before you start investing. And don't get me wrong, I don't think that these people do it in a malicious way. The truth is that with the way that social media works, in order to succeed, you need to make your content short and punchy, and this doesn't let you go into the nuance that these topics often require. In the past, we have certainly struggled to put nuanced points across on Instagram and have those pieces of content do well, which is why we started this podcast, and we're also currently working on an A to Z beginner's investing course which will be a guided course taking place over a six-week period with regular check-ins because I do think it's important to understand the nuances behind investing in the stock market. But anyway, to explore whether investing in the S&P 500, FTSE 100 or other similar stock market indices is a good idea, we'll start with a brief description of each of these, we'll introduce the concept of index funds, and then we'll go into the pros and cons of investing in index funds. 
Because while we cannot tell you what to invest in, we can give you the information that you need, to the best of our knowledge, of course, in order for you to make your own decisions. So let's start by just reminding ourselves what a stock market index is. A stock market index is a measure of the performance of a group of stocks that represent a particular geography or sector in the market. The best way to think of a stock market index is like a basket of stocks in different companies, and you're tracking the basket. Take the FTSE 100, for example, which is a large stock market index that tracks the 100 largest companies on the London Stock Exchange. By tracking what are essentially the 100 share prices of the largest publicly traded companies in the UK, the FTSE 100 provides a useful insight into the UK economy and the UK stock market as a whole. As of the 10th of April, the top five holdings of the FTSE 100 were, from largest to smallest, AstraZeneca, Shell, HSBC, Unilever, and BP. And across the pond in the US, we've got the S&P 500, which is a stock market index that tracks 500 large companies listed on stock exchanges in the United States. The top companies in this index are some of the most instantly recognizable brands in the world, such as Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, and Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google. As you can tell just from this short snippet of companies, the index includes a lot of companies from the technology industry. As with the FTSE 100 and the UK economy, the performance of the S&P 500 index is an indicator of how the US stock market and the US economy is performing. Although, not always. For example, in 2020, the S&P 500 ended the year up 16%, while the US economy contracted almost 3%. So there are always exceptions. But this also kind of shows how the stock market is forward-looking. So even though the US economy fell 3%, the S&P 500 probably rose 16% because the outlook after 2020 looked pretty bright for finance and for the US economy, mainly thanks to the level of financial stimulus that was injected by their central bank, the Federal Reserve. But anyway, back to these indices. So you may hear people say, you know, oh, the market's up 3% today, which I mean, that's, that's a pretty good day. And when people say something like that, when they're referring to, you know, the market in the UK or the US, they are probably talking about one of these stock market indices, you know, whichever their favorite one is to follow. But there are other stock market indices, both in the UK and in the US, just to make it more confusing for you. <laughs> in the UK, another commonly quoted one is the FTSE 250. If FTSE 100 consists of the top 100 largest public companies in the UK, FTSE 250 looks at the next 250 companies. So from company 101 to 350 in terms of stock market value. It has companies like ASOS, Greggs, WH Smith, and even Wizair, which prior to doing the research for this podcast, I had no idea is listed on the London Stock Exchange. Even though the FTSE 100 is the main stock market index in the UK, experts often say that the FTSE 250 is a better indicator for the UK economy because FTSE 100 is full of multinationals that have operations all over the world, whereas companies in the FTSE 250 tend to be more focused on the UK. Yeah, I mean, I say that ASOS and Greggs pretty much sum up the UK economy. <laughs> In the US, two other popular stock market indices are the Nasdaq Composite, also referred to as the Nasdaq, and the Dow Jones Industrial Average, also referred to as simply the Dow Jones. Yeah, there's two different types of Nasdaq, the Nasdaq Composite and the Nasdaq 100. So the Nasdaq itself is actually a stock exchange, and it primarily consists of technology-focused companies, but not exclusively. You do get companies from a range of different industries listed on the Nasdaq, but it is generally well known as being a more technology-focused index. 
for example, Tesla, which was not part of the S&P 500 for quite a long time until the recent... I think it's until 2020. Until 2020, or maybe even 2021. It, it only joined the S&P 500 recently, but it was listed on the NASDAQ and it made up a big chunk of the NASDAQ stock market index for a long time. And the difference between the two is that the Nasdaq Composite is an index formed of all the companies listed on the Nasdaq, but the Nasdaq 100 is just the top 100 largest companies, which probably make up a decent chunk in terms of the whole value of the Nasdaq. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average is kind of the opposite in one sense. It's one of the oldest stock market indices around, and it's made up of 30 companies that are meant to give a broad overview of the US economy, but a lot of them can be more old-fashioned companies, although it did recently add Apple to it. So, you know, they do they do try and stay with the latest mix of the economy and what drives the economy. But the Dow Jones is generally thought of as being a bit more old-fashioned and older companies. The Nasdaq is a bit more modern, tech-focused, newer companies. And the S&P 500 is somewhere in the middle. And the S&P 500 is the leading indicator in the US. I think it comprises about 80% of the total stock market value in the US. Another thing um, that's a bit different in Dow Jones compared to the other indices is that it's price weighted instead of market cap weighted. So what that means is that it only looks at the share price of a different company, not at the actual size of the company, which is a bit weird because as we know, the share price of a company doesn't really say much. It's the total value of the company that shows you how big a company actually is. Yeah, so indices like the S&P 500 and the FTSE 100, and to be honest, most stock market indices are kind of weighted by market cap, meaning that the bigger a company is in terms of its size, the more of a share of that index it will make up. So for example, Apple, largest publicly listed company in the world, I think, unless Saudi Aramco's gotten near to them. But Apple is you know, the, the largest component of the S&P 500 because it's over a $2 trillion company. Yes, and market cap is just short for market capitalization that can be obtained by multiplying a company's share price by the total number of outstanding shares. So even though a company might have a higher share price than another, they could just have fewer shares outstanding, which could lead to the company value being lower. So the share price alone doesn't actually tell you much about a company. Now, going back to the main stock market indices in the US and in the UK, historically, the S&P 500's long-run average annual return has been around 10%. But in the 2010s, the S&P 500 had an extraordinary run, registering a total return of 256% or a 13.5% compound annual growth rate. To put that into context, if you had invested £10,000 in the S&P 500 in 2010 and left it there until the end of 2019, you would have ended up with close to £36,000. The FTSE's long-term average total annual return has been a bit lower, around 7%, and in the past 10 years, around 6%. Now, these are good returns, especially when you think that over the last decade, the returns that we had from savings accounts were pretty much zero. So it's no surprise that investing in the S&P 500 or the FTSE 100 is very popular. And in the last decade, with more and more competition in the investing space, it's got so much easier and less costly to invest in the S&P 500 and the FTSE 100. And you can invest in these indices through some things called index funds or ETFs. These are essentially baskets of stocks that try to replicate the composition of certain indices, in this case the S&P 500 or the FTSE 100. 
Instead of the word fund, if you go on an investing platform like Trading212, for example, you might also see the acronym ETF. And it's basically the same thing. There are minor differences, but honestly, for the purposes of our discussion, they're the same thing. Yeah, ETF stands for Exchange Traded Fund, and it basically means a fund that is traded on a stock exchange. So you can buy and sell ETFs just like normal shares, but they are funds. So for example, an S&P 500 ETF is an S&P 500 index fund that you can buy and sell on the stock market. So this is why I'll probably use index fund and ETF interchangeably for the rest of this podcast. Okay, so index funds or ETFs are essentially baskets of stocks that try to replicate the composition of certain indices. In this case, the S&P 500 or the FTSE 100. The companies that manage an S&P 500 index fund or ETF like Vanguard or Fidelity, for example, have bought the 500 stocks that make up the S&P 500 and have tried to replicate the percentage allocation of each stock, such that in the long run, that index fund will have a return as close as possible to the S&P 500. It's not going to be identical because there will be fees associated with holding that fund, but it's going to be quite close. Now, these ETFs make it a lot easier and a lot cheaper to invest in the S&P 500 or the FTSE 100 because, first, you don't need to buy shares of each company in the index yourself, and second, the company that manages the fund won't have to pay a whole team of analysts to do research on the stocks because they're not trying to get as high a return as possible. They're just trying to basically copy a stock market index. So, you know, they're, they're looking at Standard & Poor's work. Standard & Poor's are the people that put together this basket of stocks and they're basically saying thank you very much we're going to copy that and because we're only you know we've got one person copying this uh, pre-made basket of stocks we're only going to charge us as investors a fee of like 0.07 percent whereas some managed funds might charge half a percent a year so yeah it's a lot cheaper in terms of fees to own index funds compared to other managed funds because it's a lot less effort for the team to put together and by the way, that is what the letters S and P stand for, Standard and Poor's, because they are the company that have created this index and that manage it. So these funds or ETFs can offer a low-cost, simple, and convenient way to invest into indices that have had historically pretty good returns. And we get messages from a lot of people whose only investments are S&P 500 funds. And you know what? Uh, that's totally fine if you know exactly what you're getting into. But this strategy of only investing in the S&P 500 or only investing in the FTSE 100 is not bulletproof. And maybe the biggest misconception is that this is a safe investment, which it isn't. And now we're going to go into why. We're mostly going to refer to the S&P 500 here, but a lot of these notions could be applied to investing only in the FTSE 100 as well. The reasoning goes like this. Just because the S&P 500 has had fantastic returns over the last 10 or 20 years, it doesn't mean that you should invest only in the S&P 500. And to answer why, we are going to talk about Harry Markowitz, an American economist and Nobel Prize winner. He developed something called the modern portfolio theory. This theory basically explained that investors shouldn't focus only on returns. They should focus on returns and risk. He argued that most people are risk-averse. For the same level of returns, an investor will choose the investment with the lowest risk. If you think of yourself, for example, say you've got the choice between getting £1,000 for sure or a gamble where 50% of the time you get nothing and 50% of the time you get £2,000. 
In both cases, the expected value is a thousand pounds, but I'm pretty sure you'd prefer the first scenario where you'd get the money for certain. Because of this risk aversion, this Markowitz guy argued that an investor's goal is to maximize returns for a given level of risk, or to minimize risk for a given level of returns. And according to him, the best way to do this is to have a portfolio of assets that move opposite to one another. So if you think about two assets, this would mean that when one moves up, the other one would go down and vice versa. In investing speak, you'd say that these assets are negatively correlated. And this is good, according to Harry Markowitz, because one bad ride for one asset wouldn't cause you to lose all your money, because the other asset would move in the opposite direction and would make you money. This strategy of spreading your risk across multiple assets, which are influenced by different things, is called diversification. And here's the thing. If you invest only in the S&P 500, you'd think that you're diversified because it has 500 different companies from different industries. And to some extent, you are. You're definitely much more diversified by investing in the S&P 500 than if you only invested in Apple. But the issue is that this is only one layer of diversification by industry only. So if the finance industry had a bad year, then growth in industries that are negatively correlated with the finance industry would work in the opposite direction and protect an investor's money. Although that is not entirely true either. And it's not perfectly diversified because the way the S&P 500 is constructed means that the technology industry makes up about 26% of the index, followed by healthcare with 14% and financials with around 13%. So the S&P 500 will suffer more from a downturn in the technology industry than it would if the real estate industry did badly, because the latter makes up just under 3% of the S&P 500. And indeed, we've seen that in 2022, when the S&P 500 ended the year down 19% in a time when technology stocks kind of got whacked. And funnily enough, in 2022, the FTSE 100 had a total return of 4.7% in the year, which is helped by the fact that it has a high proportion of oil and gas companies who had record profits last year. Now, it's not perfect, but you could almost say the S&P 500 and the FTSE 100, uh, I'm I'm not saying they're negatively correlated, but the S&P 500 has more of a technology focus, and I would say the FTSE 100 has more of an industrial focus, like with these oil and gas and energy companies. I mean, we've already seen that Shell and BP are part of the top five holdings. Yeah, I think, I mean, to be perfectly sure, you'd have to put them in a statistical model and see how that affects one's portfolio. But I think... Boring. (laughs) No one wants to do that. But I think it can be argued that you definitely have a level of diversification if you owned both the S&P 500 and the FTSE 100 in your portfolio. Well, I'm sure we're going to get to that in a little bit as well. Yeah, and to be fair, the FTSE 100 has been killing it lately. I mean, I think it's got to an all-time high in February this year, so just a couple of months ago. Not bad. But as we said, looking at the S&P 500, it offers one layer of diversification, really, and that is diversification by industry. But it doesn't offer other layers of diversification, and this is where the risk lies. For example, all S&P 500 companies are in the United States, so an economic downturn in the US could disproportionately affect those who only invest in the S&P 500. Although this is somewhat mitigated by the fact that a lot of these companies are multinationals and have operations all over the world, so they are not solely dependent on the performance of the US economy. 
And also, if you feel like we're saying a lot of like, well, although this is not exactly like that, it's because of what I was saying earlier. There are a lot of nuances and caveats when you're talking about investing. Yeah, so. I, I promise we're not just sitting on the fence. Though we kind of are. <laughs> but even when we mentioned earlier about how you know, a downturn in the real estate market might not have as big an effect on the S&P 500 because it only makes up 3% of the S&P 500. Then you also think of the knock-on effects of that. If there's a downturn in the real estate market, is there going to be a downturn in banks because lending and mortgages are going to dry up? And is there going to be a downturn maybe in the broader economy because you know a lot of wealth is driven by homes? And if you look at the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, you know that was driven by a combination of banks and a really harsh real estate downturn, and that certainly affected the S&P 500 more than a little bit. So because of the way economics works and how everything is so interconnected. Connected. It's very hard to say <laughs> to say anything with certainty and also to say anything in isolation. That, that's why we can't just put this on a post on Instagram and say uh, the S&P 500 is a bit risky to invest in. And here's why. Because there's so many factors that kind of interact with each other. Although or, we might try. I was about to say. We, <laughs> in order to promote this podcast. But <laughs> hey, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, no, we, we might. We might. I mean, we will try. You know, one, one of the things with Instagram is we try and take complicated subjects and make them as understandable as possible but yeah as you know as, as you said earlier this is one of the reasons we started this podcast is so that we can talk through these nuances in a lot more detail and we're not even going to get to cover all of them yeah exactly it, so it's at the end of the day it's going to be up to you if you're interested in this to do more research on the subject and Actually, speaking of that, beware of anyone that talks in absolutes, you know, beware of anyone that says, oh, the S&P 500 is going to go up 20% or it's going to crash 40% this year or, you know, sell everything. We're going into an economic downturn or anything like that because no one truly knows because the performance of, you know, the US, the UK, like the global economy and the stock market is just the intersection and interconnection of like thousands of different variables, really. And I don't think anyone can predict that. Maybe a computer will one day, <laughs> but we're not there yet. No, exactly. One of the most dangerous things in investing is uh, people that speak in absolutes, because I think you have to be humble <laughs> when you invest. And, and if you're not, then the stock market will have a way of humbling you. But if you're some arrogant investor posting videos on TikTok about, oh, this can do this, this can do that, well, then you can just disappear after six months and no one will ever know. So yeah, always bear in mind that nothing is guaranteed. Um, but yeah, anyway, sorry, back to the, the S&P 500. Another thing is that virtually all companies in the S&P 500 are mature companies. And by that, I don't mean that they've got a mortgage, are emotionally available and ready to settle down. Although, in a sense, I kind of am. These are companies that are financially stable, that are well-known and trusted in their industry and have a fairly high market share. So, you know, I was swipe right. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but anyway, this means that there are fewer opportunities to capture growth for this bigger companies compared to smaller companies who are in their introduction or growth phase of the business cycle. Indeed, a very prestigious study by Fama French in the 1990s found that small companies have historically outperformed large companies by about 2 percentage points on an annualized basis. Their relationship hasn't held up particularly well in the last 15 years or so when mega large caps like Apple, Amazon, Google and so on have been growing like crazy. But the long-term evidence does point to a benefit in holding small companies in your portfolio. Which is not really achieved in the S&P 500 or the FTSE 100. No, it's not. 
A small cap stock market index in the US is the Russell 2000, I believe. And finally, investing in the S&P 500 only provides exposure to one asset class, which is stocks. So if that's the case, and the stock market as a whole has had a bad year or decade, as has happened in the past, then you don't have any other asset classes like bonds or real estate to try and balance that. And by the way, historically, bonds and stocks have been shown to be negatively correlated, if you remember what we were talking about um, earlier. And if you look at the 2000s, the fact that stocks don't always go up will become much clearer. During the 2000s, the stock market, and by the stock market, I'm talking about the S&P 500, experienced two big downturns. First, the dot-com bubble, where people got excited about the proliferation of the internet and stock market valuations got out of control until the bubble burst, sound like 2021. And secondly, the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008, when banks took on too much risk with complex securities backed by subpar mortgages. From the start of January 2000 to the end of December 2009, so, you know, this is a decade, the S&P 500 lost 21% in value. Now, this is without taking dividends into account. With dividends, it basically stayed flat over 10 years. So that's 10 years with a 0% return. And that's why this period became known as the lost decade. But we know that the decade that followed was pretty incredible. By contrast, though, a globally diversified portfolio across multiple assets, including stocks, bonds, real estate, and commodities, delivered an annualized 7% return compared to the minus 0.95% of the S&P 500 over that same period, according to Sawa.com. Also, there is a way to invest in all of these asset classes, and that is through different investment trusts and ETFs as well. So, for example, if you want exposure to real estate, you don't need to buy a property and incur all those high upfront costs and you know the stress of managing it. You could just invest in a real estate investment trust, which is also known as a REIT. And this basically pulls the money together from lots of investors and buys and manages different properties, and you can buy shares of REITs on the stock market. Similarly, with a bond, you don't necessarily have to buy a government bond from a bank. You could just buy an ETF that tracks the performance of several bonds, and there's the same with commodities such as gold. So there are ways that you can invest in these different asset classes as well if you do want to diversify across them. Okay, so just to summarize that, if you want to achieve broad diversification, as it's called, some types of diversification are diversification by industry, diversification by size, so small and large companies, diversification across geography. So for example, you can buy um, global stocks since we live in an increasingly global economy, diversification by asset class. So think stocks, bonds, real estate, commodities. And before we go on to our last one, I do just want to talk for 30 seconds about diversification across geography. Because in my head, this is one of the most overlooked things when people say invest in the S&P 500 and just kind of forget about it. And it's one of the reasons that I personally, if I were to invest in an index fund, would choose a global ETF. You know, there, there are tons of global ETFs out there that invest in thousands of companies all across the world. And because of the size of American companies and the fact that these global ETFs are normally market cap weighted, you still have the majority of the holdings, you know, that the S&P 500 has, but you're just a lot more 
globally diversified. And, you know, I am excited to see what other countries can come out with, the likes of China and Brazil, the South American countries, India. Like, there, there are loads, oh, and in Europe as well. You know, there, there are loads of different places that I would want to be invested in. And just because the S&P 500 has had brilliant performance over the last decade, there's no guarantee that that will continue. And I personally just feel much more comfortable investing in a global index fund. If I'm saying I'm going to invest in this index fund, top it up every month and just kind of roll with it for 30 years, I would much rather be focused on a global index fund rather than an index fund that just tracks one economy. So I understand why people have this approach with the S&P 500. The US economy has been brilliant for pretty much the last century, if not a bit longer. But yeah, I think that's that's just my preference. Well, I think that sounds very reasonable. Well, thank you. <laughs> but yes, last but not least, uh, there's one type of diversification that we've not really touched on until now, and that is diversification across time. Instead of waiting for the perfect time to invest and get into some sort of analysis paralysis, you could invest small amounts regularly. For example, that could be every time you get paid. Or you can even set up an automatic deposit and an investment schedule with some platforms like Vanguard or Trading212. And this is because waiting for the perfect time to invest can cost you a lot in terms of time in the market, which is one of the most important things when investing. For example, Schroders has looked at the impact of missing the 10 best days both in the S&P 500 and the FTSE 100 over the period from January 1988 to June 2022. So that's 34 years. In both cases, missing the 10 best days would have cut the final value of your investment in half, which is crazy. Imagine trying to figure out the 10 best days in 34 years. Imagine trying to figure that out guessing it wrong and seeing your investment cut in half. Mm. Like that's the kind of stuff that can make it hard to sleep at night as an investor. Yeah, they even looked at the impact of missing the 20 best days and 30 best days. And I think in the case of the 30 best days, your investment would have maybe been like a quarter of the value. Although I would be intrigued to see what the impact would be of missing the 10 worst days. Yeah, Because I know that a lot of these studies often look at the impact of missing the 10 best days. And you know, like we just told you, your return could get cut in half. But I do wonder how much higher your return could be if you miss the 10 worst days. And it probably would be a substantial amount higher. But obviously, this requires a lot more effort. And as, as we spoke about earlier, with the general way that economics works and the stock market, everything being so interconnected, uh, you know, you never know what kind of impact the changes in one thing is going to have in another thing, like how bad the impact of something will be or how good the impact of something will be. And trying to piece that all together to try and figure out when the 10 best days and the 10 worst days of the market are going to be. I mean, that's that just sounds like a headache to me. And, and for some people, you could do it, but it, it's not, not, not for me, especially not with broadly diversified index funds. I was going to say, is that like the butterfly effect? Is that what it's called? When yeah. like something seemingly small ends up like causing a really big... Yeah, I, wa event. I watched the film. I think with oh, Ashton. I, I think it. with Ashton Kutcher. Ashton Kutcher. I hated oh. it. I hated it. Really? I, I, yeah, I still have not nightmares, but it still freaks me <laughs> <Okay>. out. <There's, laughs> no, there's one scene. Um, there's one scene with a dog that is just horrible. Of course, it's a scene with a dog. Like, on, the guy honestly, <laughs> it it. Uh, I, I hate. I hate just even thinking about it. I don't even know. I didn't even know there's a movie. I mean, it, it makes sense that there is one. Well, you can watch it on your own because I'm not watching it. Again. Yeah, I'm not watching. It. 
So to summarize for the end of this podcast, the S&P 500 or the FTSE 100 can be a good friend in your investment portfolio, but either one of them probably shouldn't be your only friend if you want to minimize your risk and not experience wild swings from one period to another. Of course, past performance is not a guarantee of future performance, but we can learn some valuable lessons from the past. This could potentially lower your long-run return as stocks have tended to outperform asset classes like bonds or real estate, but it could also smooth out the swings if the stock market performs really badly during a given period of time. And as we've already seen, an individual stock market index like the S&P 500 can go for 10 years and give you nothing. Nada. But then we've seen the 10 years that followed, it gives you a pretty incredible return. So it's about whether or not you're happy with that kind of extended period of great performance or extended period of nothing. Or if you want that diversification, which can just, it might lower your overall returns, but it's likely to be, you know, less of a roller coaster. And it very much depends on how much time you plan to stay invested as well. So that is called your time horizon. So for example, if you were to open a junior stocks and shares ISA for your kid, that's like one, and you want to invest for them, I mean, that kid probably has 80 years ahead of them. So you could certainly take a bit more risk than maybe yourself if you're like, I don't know, 45 or, you know, 50. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if if we want to talk about how to reduce your risk, obviously, the best way to do that is probably through diversification. And a diversified portfolio could have some exposure to global stocks of different sizes, some exposure to global bonds, and then maybe some allocation to real estate investment trusts, and maybe some exposure to commodities like gold or oil. And for all of these, you could just buy a basket of ETFs that gives you exposure to these things through an investment provider. And I'm pretty sure someone like Vanguard, for example, they they offer life strategy portfolios, which are a mix of stocks and bonds. And I'm sure there are other funds out there that basically, I think they're called asset allocation funds that can invest across multiple different asset classes like the ones we've just mentioned. Okay, and before we wrap things up, just a reminder that we are not going to have an episode next week because we will be away and the weather looks nice so keep your fingers crossed for us and so the next podcast episode will be dropping in two weeks time on the 27th of april okay so there you have it we hope that this podcast gave you some food for thought when it comes to investing only in the s&p 500 or the FTSE 100 and in terms of strategies you could employ to reduce your risk let us know any feedback you might have by sending us a message on our Instagram at Stocks and Savings. And we really hope you found this helpful. If you did, share this to your Instagram story and tag us. That is probably the best way to support us. And please give this episode a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Since we are a smaller podcast, this would really help us gain credibility. See you next time.